0: Now, today we are, of course, beginning a series, actually. I do not know we're in Colossians. We are beginning a series looking at the person and work of Christ. And we're doing this because we have come to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 23. This is a new section we are starting. In verse 15 to 23, Paul is continuing, actually, to remind the Colossians and us why we should grow to be like Christ. And endure life with joy and patience. That's the context uh, of Colossians uh, 15 to 23. Uh, in verse 11 to 14, Paul has already told us that the key to living with joy and patience is to grow in giving thanks to God for the blessings he has given us in Christ Jesus. I'll just read verse 11 to 14 for us again to refresh our minds. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we looked at those verses, we said there are two blessings there, uh, in verse 13 to 14 particularly, that we must thank God for. And that was the last two sermons. We must thank God, first of all, for delivering us from darkness, for making us safe from darkness. Secondly, we must thank God that we are home with God in Christ. Verse 13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So there are two things, safety from darkness and the fact that we are now home with God in Christ. But here is the question, right? How can we be sure that this is true? How can we be confident that the death of Christ has indeed redeemed us from a life of slavery? That he has delivered the forgiveness of our sins? What is our confidence that Christ is a reliable and dependable savior? What makes Christ different from everyone else who claims to be our savior? Well, the answer is in verse 15 to 23. We are sure that we are blessed in Christ because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us who truly trust in him. And in verse 15 to 23, there are seven truths, perhaps more, about Christ and his work. This morning, I want us to look at the first truth. And this first truth is the first part of verse 15. It is the image of the invisible God. I just want to look at that phrase. He is the image of the invisible God. This is the first truth Paul wants us to understand. The reason for our confidence in Christ as our Redeemer and Savior. And I think what Paul is saying by that phrase is simply this. Christ is God made visible to us. Christ is God made visible. That is our first point and it is our only point this morning. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, one of the most challenging things about our relationship with God is that God is invisible. As Paul says here, we cannot see God with our naked eyes. And if you ever try to share the gospel with a friend or a family member, you may have heard them say that this is one of the reasons that they don't believe in God. People often say, I cannot believe in God because I cannot see him, right? They want a God they can touch, see, and perhaps even smell someone physical. But as I shall see in a moment, there is a perfectly good reason why the true God is invisible to us. God, by definition, must be invisible to be God. But, on that thought, and I just want you to admit with me that there is something challenging about the fact that the true God is invisible. You and I are physical beings. We are made of flesh and blood. And although we are spirit beings at the same time, we have the spirit in us, we live 24-7 in a material world. A world we can hear, see, smell, touch, and test, right? That is our life. We are material beings living in a material world. And this makes it hard for us to relate and appreciate God. Not just God, but anything else that is invisible to us. Think with me for a moment the air that you're breathing at the moment. You just breathe it, don't you? You just breathe it. You don't pause to think about it. Let me just pause and think about the hair before I breathe it. You just breathe it, right? Right now, as you sit here, you are being kept in your chair by the force of gravity. Have you thought about gravity today? I suspect no. Do you see my point? All of us struggle to appreciate things we cannot see or touch. And this is one of the reasons it is hard for us to relate to the one true God. God is invisible. Now, one of the stories in the Bible that I think really gets this point across that it is hard for us to relate to God because He's invisible is the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. You may remember the story, right? The children of Israel are in the wilderness. Moses has disappeared from the scene, hasn't it? And it seems the presence of God has gone missing with Moses because He's up on the mountain. And so what happens at the bottom? Well, the people of God, Israel, start panicking, don't they? They start panicking. And they start pressuring the high priest, Aaron, to build a golden calf. And the purpose of building this golden calf is that it's so that it can lead them into the promised land or even lead them back to Egypt, whichever works, right? They are restless. They want a visible God instead of the invisible Yahweh. They still believe in Yahweh, but they need this visible thing. They want a God that they can see and touch. And so as they pressure Moses, pressure Aaron, sorry, what does Aaron do? Well, Aaron gives in, right? And he makes this golden calf for them. Now here's the thing when Moses was around, Israel did not worry about creating a golden calf. They did not worry that they could not see God. Because the strength of Moses' relationship with God compensated for that invisibility of God. Moses was a visible mediator between God and Israel. But when Moses goes up the mountain, the invisibility of God becomes too much for Israel. Israel felt what I call a transcendent void. What I mean by that is that they knew in their heart that God exists, but they wanted to touch him, to feel him, to even smell him. And so what they did is they created their own version of God. And throughout their history, as we read through the Bible and the Old Testament, we see Israel keeps repeating this. They keep replacing God with the gods of the land, the gods they can feel, touch, and move places, the gods they can control. And Israel is not alone, actually. All of us, in different ways, do this thing of replacing the invisible God with something visible in, in our life that we worship. And there are many ways we do this. You know, a few years ago, I read a BBC report about the people in northwest India in one of the villages in Rajasthan. These people visit a roadside shrine to pray to a motorbike. They pray to a motorbike called Bullet Raja. This motorcycle uh, has been put on a display in a glass box and is decorated with flowers. And these people come to this motorcycle to pray for a safe journey You're thinking to yourself, what is that about? Well, apparently it all began in 1988. A young man called Ombanya was killed when his motorcycle hit a tree, right? And the locals started saying the bike kept returning to the scene of the accident by itself, even after the police took the motorcycle to the southern province of Punjab. So eventually it was brought back because the locals believe this motorcycle possesses supernatural powers. One man in the report says, the spirit of Ombania gave him 20,000 rupees, which was at the time the report was written, was 200 pounds. So that is a Prosperity Gospel um, motorcycle religion style. Gave him 200 pounds. Now, when we think about these people, these people worship a motorcycle instead of the invisible God. That's foolish, isn't it? That's foolish, right? But let me ask you this, are they more foolish than people living in the so-called civilized West? We have our idols, celebrities, influencers, football teams, money, spouses, education, many visible gods we have replaced for the invisible God. And the Bible says our idolatry is just as an abomination as what's going on in Rajasthan. It's an abomination to God. Because the Bible is teaching us here in in verse 15 that God, the true God, is invisible. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. But what does Paul here mean when he says that God is invisible? There are many things I think he means, but I just want to flag up two things. First of all, it means that God is not physical like us. So he means by negation. When he says God is invisible, he's stating, first of all, what God is not. And what is God is not is that it does not have any body at all, it doesn't have a body. God, as the Bible says, is spirit. So first of all, he's stating what God is not. Secondly, he's stating what God is. God is invisible. What he means by that is that God transcends everything that exists. God is head and shoulders above all. He's above space, time, norms, ethics. He's above everything created. God is invisible means there will always be something about God that is invisible to us. Right? Because there will always be something about God that is over and above us. We are like grasshoppers before God. No matter how much we look at God, right? or try to climb to see and understand God, we will always come up short. There will always be something about God that is invisible to us. God is not only spirit, he is also transcendent. He transcends everything. He's over and above, head and shoulders, over everything that exists. And most importantly... God cannot be God without being invisible in His divine essence. He cannot be all powerful, all present, and all knowing if, in His divine essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in His divine Trinitarian essence, if He had a divine body. A God who, in His divine essence, is a body would not be God because He would be limited. For example, a God with a body would, be every, would not be everywhere. Unless he fills the whole body, there's no room for us, right? You would not be everywhere. And if God cannot be everywhere, how can he possibly know everything? And if he does not know everything, how then can he be all-powerful? Because the power of God assumes his omnipresence. To be all-powerful, God has to be everywhere. And you know, a God with a divine body would not be self-sufficient. His body would need to depend on something. But the Bible tells us the true God doesn't depend on it. That's what Paul's sermon in Acts says. A God with a body would need to sit somewhere or stand on some place. He would not be self-dependent. Now, of course... To some of us, all of this is all obvious, and you say, yeah, sure, move along. We know already uh, the true God, by definition, must be invisible to our eyes because it is the essence of what it means to be God. But why am I laboring this point? Well, I'm laboring this point because we are living in a world that tells us what? Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Unless you can see something, do not believe it. And and that's actually a powerful message that they're teaching our children. I know, this is just from speaking with my daughter. That's the message in the school. Do not believe anything unless you can see it and verify proof. (laughs) This is is the essence of the scientific method. Seeing things. Now, I just want to say, that may be true when you're doing shopping. (laughs) You're going to see it. It may be true... When you are courting, seeing is important. It's true in many areas of our lives, but not with God. The Bible is clear, God is invisible. And it makes sense, as I've said, that God should be invisible. So I want to speak especially today, the young people here. When we think about what God is, who God should be, the internal consistency of God, we might say, and then you open your Bible... It lines up. (laughs) What what the Bible says about who God should be makes sense. It makes sense that God should be invisible even though you can't see him and you struggle with that. Because for God to be eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, he must be invisible. Now, God being invisible does not mean we cannot know him. But what it does mean is that for us to know God, we need God to reveal himself to us. If God is over and above us, we cannot reach out to him. God must reach out to us for us to know him, right? And God has revealed himself to us, hasn't he? First of all, in what he has created. Brother Victor read for us from Psalm 19, verse one, 19. The first three verses of Psalm 19, verse 1, Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. You see that? Creation proclaims the invisible God. And Paul picks up that theme, doesn't he, in Romans 1, verse 20. He says this, For his invisible attribute, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, how in the things that have been made, so that they, that is you and I, are without excuse. The invisible God has revealed himself with his attributes in creation. But in this passage in Colossians 1 verse 15, there's even a a more earth-shaking good news about the revelation of God. The invisible God, beloved, is now amazingly visible to us in Christ. Special revelation of himself. He is the image of the invisible God speaking of Christ. It is Christ that Paul is talking about in verse 15 because the hymn in verse 15 is referring back to verse 13, isn't it? The beloved son of verse 13. Paul is saying the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved son, is the very image of the invisible God. Now, what does he mean by this word image? Well, in your standard dictionary, if you've got a dictionary at home, uh, you open it, you to get home. I think what you're going to find is it's going to say an image is a physical likeness or a picture or a representation or a reflection of a person or thing, right? So you, before you came to church this morning, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you stood in front of the mirror and saw an image of yourself. If you are married, of course, perhaps you stood in front of your wife and she told you, you look great, keep on going, right? Or your husband told you that, right? That's your mirror, right? But many of us just stood in front of the mirror, right? And we saw an image of ourselves, we saw a copy, a shadow of us, right? And that's how we normally use the word image, what we are seeing in the mirror. But Paul did not write this letter to the Colossians in English. He wrote it in New Testament Greek, And at this time that poet is writing, in the Greek language and culture, to say something is an image of something, actually means it is the same. That's why sometimes it's good for us to read the Bible a bit deeper, isn't it? To understand a bit more about what the original language is saying. Because the words are not the same. It means it is the same, rather. Image means the same. In New Testament Greek, it is not simply a mirror reflection or a photocopy of the original. It is an exact and full representation of the original. It is the original itself. And that's what Paul means here. He's saying that Christ is God. Amen. And this is also what other parts of the Bible teach us. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3 says this Long ago, at many times, in many places, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then he says this. He is, that is Christ, the radiance of the glory of God. And listen to this. And the exact imprint of his divine nature. And Christ opposed the universe by the word of his power. Christ is the original of God, not the copy. Paul says the same things. Romans 9, verse 5. To them belong, speaking of Israel, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's what Paul says. Christ is not a copy of God. Christ is the Lord God Almighty, now visible as one of us forever. Christ is God dressed in our human flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. So Paul here is reminding us, isn't he? That mind boggling truth of Christmas. The wonder of Christ. That our Lord is the only person in existence who has in himself this union of contrast. Christ is one person with two separate natures sitting in perfect unity in his body. He is the invisible God and the visible man at the same time. In Christ, the invisible divine nature sits together with his visible human nature. The invisible eternal life shares a home with the visible temporal life. The invisible divine glory coexists with visible human garbage, we might say. The invisible divine omnipotence walks side by side with visible human weakness in the body and person of Christ. And what Paul is saying to the Colossians and us is that the reason Christ has come To image God to us is simply this Christ has come to make sense of God to us Christ comes to be the visible if you like to reveal God to us and Christ reveals God how does he do that he reveals God in three ways first of all Christ reveals God in his being the coming of Christ is the final and full revelation of who God is. That's why Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3, which we just read, tells us. Christ is the final word. Christ is all God wants to say to us about who God is. What does Christ reveal about who God is? Well, first, there are many things. But fundamentally, Christ reveals that God is Trinity. God is an eternal relationship of three eternal persons in one essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout the Bible, we see this, okay, this revelation of God as Trinity. But we only begin to grasp and take it in when the eternal Son of God appears, enters the womb of Mary, and is born in a cradle. Christ reveals who God is at his core. God is an eternal relationship of three persons. His trinity. That's the first thing Christ reveals. Secondly, Christ reveals God not only in his being, but in his character. If you want to know what God is like, what is God like? Well, you want to know that. You simply need to read the four biographies of Christ in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we read those four biographies of Christ, they paint a portrait of God. In the life of Christ, we see the character of God on foot displayed, don't we? And the first thing we learn is that God is humble. Shocking, isn't it? God is full of humility. Taking on our flesh, the transcendent becoming imminent. We learn God is Humble. We learn why God has come. Why has he come? Because God is love. God is loving. In the life of Christ, we see the mercy of God, the patience of God towards sinners, the kindness, the compassion of Christ reveals the compassionate heart of God. In Christ's life, we see that God is gentle, We see that this is a God who stoops low and washes our feet. The humility of God. But even in the washing of the feet, he's humble. He's, he's gentle. We learn this is a God who cries, who grieves over the brokenness. As he weeps over the tomb of resonance. We learn he's a God who allows sinners to touch him, isn't it? Shocking as the leper reaches out and touches Jesus on his heel, but in Christ we not only see those what we might call communicable attributes, but we also see other things about Christ: his holiness, which is communicable, of course, by his power, his transcendent power. Is not like us. He drives out demons, and he raises the dead. We see the infinite wisdom of God in Christ. There are so many attributes. When you read, when you read the gospels, you should be asking yourself, "What does this teach me about who God is?" As I see Christ, that's the way to read the gospel. And I think we didn't do, I think, enough of that when we went through Mark. Maybe that's why we need to move to Johnson, right? So Christ reveals the being of God. He reveals the character of God. And the th- the final thing is that He reveals the mission of God. Christ reveals God in his mission. What do I mean by that? In Christ, we learn what God is up to in this world. What is God up to? What, what is God's passion? What is his mission in this world? Well, we see that in Christ, isn't it? The Bible teaches us that the world has rebelled against God and under the wrath and judgment of God. All humanity is headed to hell by default. the coming of Christ reveals God's mission for us. God is at work to serve all whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world to be with him forever. The mission of God, you see, is to bring home the elect of God. Through the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Christ. Christ is God made visible to gather his elect. He has come on a mission to deliver us from the domain of darkness and to bring us safely into his beloved eternal kingdom. That's what God is after. Everything God is doing is about one group of people only. The church of God. Christ is God made visible. In his being, in his character, and in his mission. So, the question then is this. We always ask, what do we make of this? What should we do with this truth that Christ is God made visible? What does Paul expect the Colossians to do with this amazing truth? Three things, quickly. First, how should we respond to this? First, we must worship Christ. As our God, Christ is God. The first response of us as creatures is to worship Him. Worship Him. Paul wants the Colossians and us to give Christ the worship, the honor, the praise, the glory that Christ our God deserves. Christ is not one of the many spiritual leaders in the world is not one of Hinduism's 330 million gods. Christ is not one of the 40 prophets in the Koran. No, Christ is not even Christ the Great. Christ. Christ is our one and only God. There is no God outside Christ. All of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. And our response is we must worship. What we're doing here, worshiping Christ, is not what is happening in in the mosque. We are worshiping the true God. Now, many of us here, I hope, intellectually at least agree with this truth. That Christ, Jesus, is Lord. Lord, as in God. We agree with that. At least we see it. But sadly, the truth is that our lives do not always reflect and show that we worship Christ as our only God. You know, as a Christian, you don't have a problem of giving your whole life physically to Bule Raja, right? And abandoning Christ. The Christian's problem it's syncretism. It is adding to Jesus other gods. We would never abandon Christ. But what we do is we add other gods on top of Christ. We do what Israel did exactly with the golden calf. And so for many of us, it is Christ is God and our family is God. It is Christ and your career is God. It is Christ and your spouse is God. It is Christ and your education is God. It's Christ and your hobbies is God. You're not mentally Christ. is God made visible by the way you are living reveals the real treasure of your heart. It's not Christ alone. It's Christ plus. It is other things. Beloved, true and genuine worship of Christ as our God, therefore, is surrendering our whole heart to Christ. True worship of Christ says to Christ, you are the king of my heart. This passage is reminding us, beloved, that Christ is too big to fit him into the confines and the shape of our desires. Following Jesus can never be about fitting Christ to the shape of our desires. He's invisible, remember, and that means he transcends, by, in his divine nature, he's invisible. That means he transcends all things. Christ is God himself made visible, and he demands true worship from our hearts. He demands that our hearts are fully resting. In him alone. And so the first question this passage is asking us, and we're going to ask it in the next seven sermons, right? You get used to it, is this. What does Christ make of the way I am living? Does he think my heart has truly bowed to him? To to his lordship? Where in your life are you worshipping idols on top of Christ? Ask God to expose those idols of your heart and, and ask Christ to help you repent of them. Resolve now to live for him. We must do that. Because if you're not willing to surrender your heart to Christ or God like that, then there's no point of us kidding ourselves even. The truth is that you're not a true Christian yet. And your end is everlasting destruction. A true Christian is one who worships Christ as our only God. They worship Christ with their hearts, their actions, and indeed their words. They recognize they come up short in this, so they are always coming back to Christ. Drawing on his grace and asking Christ to help them surrender more and more. So first response is worship. Second response is that we must thank Christ for making God visible to us. Paul believes that we grow to become like Christ by growing in our, ati- in our gratitude to God, isn't it? In our, ati- in our gratitude to God. That's the point of verse 12, isn't it? Giving thanks to the Father who has uh, qualified us. And we know He's qualified us through Christ becoming visible for us. And so as we learn through, through Christ making God visible to us, and so as we learn this truth, let us give thanks to God that Christ makes God visible to us. God is infinitely above us, isn't it? We said. But God in Christ has now defend, descended an infinite distance to be with us. He has stooped down to wear our visible flesh for us. You see, if Christ was only an invisible God, right, he would be at an infinite distance from us. And if Christ was only human, he, would, he himself would be an infinite distance from God. But the wonder of Christ is that he's both the invisible man and our perfect visible, the invisible God and the perfect visible man, right? He's the mediator, the ever-present mediator between us. And God. Well let us thank him for that. Thank God that our mediator. Has willingly suffered the wrath of God. That we deserve. He became an enemy of God. To grant us full pardon. For our sin. Thank God that Christ. Has shed his own blood for us. That's his mission. He has shed his own blood for us. So that we shall one day see the glorious face of God. In the person of Jesus Christ. So, worship, thanks, and finally, well, Paul has written this truth really fundamentally to comfort us, isn't it? This truth is written to comfort the Colossians, to assure them. They are being beset by many temptations, false teachers of coming. And Paul is saying to them, look, do not doubt. You have true life with God because Christ is God made visible for you. Not for himself, for you. There is nothing that Christ did that he did for himself. Do you understand that? There is nothing that Christ did on earth that he did for himself. Christ was born, he lived, he ministered, he died, he rose from death for our benefit. As God, he was fully sufficient, self-sufficient. All of his mission was for you and I. Are you currently doubting the love of God and his care for you? Are you in a season of feeling anxious? Is life weighing you down? Do you feel alone at the moment because of the pressures of life? Are you, like me, sometimes looking at your life and wish that God can somehow be more visible to you? Lord, if you'd only show up just now that I can feel and touch you. I wish I had lived 2,000 years ago. perhaps you think to yourself at the moment. Are you wishing that Christ could physically take your hand and walk with you right now? Well, it's normal to feel like that. And when you do, go to verse 15, isn't it? Read that verse. He is the image of the invisible God. The passage is saying God is already with you now in Christ. (laughs) Beloved, Christ is not just God. Christ is your God in Christ a Christian. Christ is my God. And this truth is the death of our doubts. In Christ, we have a God who is not far from us. He is now physically with us, even suffering with us and for us. In all religions, promise that God will protect us from evil. But you know what? It is only in Christ our God made visible that we see God come down and we see God suffer with us. Only in Christ. Now, we don't know why God allows evil and suffering in our lives. But what we know is that God in Christ has allowed evil and suffering to get to him. Our God is not like a drone who just rides over the surf, uh, the, the, above our lives. No, he has entered our suffering. Not for his benefit, for your benefit. And beloved, no one has ever suffered like Christ suffered. The worst suffering in all of history happened when Christ died on the cross for us. It happened when Christ bore the very wrath of God for your sin and shame. When Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, the Father poured his full eternal wrath on our Savior for us. And in bearing that wrath, Christ defeated sin, death, hell, and Satan for us. And then the Bible says, three days later, Christ rose from death, didn't he? To give us new life to all who trust in God forever. Listen, the death of Christ on the cross does not answer every question we have about pain and suffering. we won't have every question, we won't get an answer immediately of every question. Right? I'm not saying it does answer every single question you have. But what it does is this. It assures me, and it should assure you, who, that we can trust Christ with our suffering. We know Christ suffered the greatest evil and suffering, not for himself, but for us, his beloved. And we know he bore that great, terrible suffering from God for us, because we know that we can be sure Christ will keep us in our lesser suffering, not less, you know, still significant, right? But our suffering is less than Christ's suffering. I know, I know, that's painful for some of you to hear, but it's true. Your suffering is significant, but you're never going to suffer as Christ suffered. And Christ suffered so that you wouldn't suffer the way he suffered. And therefore, with that assurance, isn't it? Well... We can trust him. We can trust his love. We can trust his care in every situation. And that truth is the only comfort we need in this world. The comfort doesn't come from what we have in of ourselves. It comes from who has us. And the person who has us is Christ. It is God made visible for us. And so Paul is saying, isn't it? In every situation, fix your eyes on him. Is your love, is your faith, and is your hope. Amen.